Hello and welcome back to the Big Esports Podcast. Boy, you're in for a long one, but a really good one. This is probably the longest podcast we have recorded uh, since we began, or thereabouts, and it's well worth listening to. I have a great chat with Stu Chisholm, the CEO of High res Studios. They're a 450-person development studio based in Atlanta. Uh, they run multiple esports leagues for their titles, which they create, and it's a massive focus for them, which is esports online and multiplayer concepts. We talk about different funding models within esports, different ways to run your games. We talk about supporting Tier 2 versus Tier 1 leagues. We talk about government support, about games development, how to get a job in the industry, be it games or esports, do you need a degree or not, and so many other questions. I'm really glad we had this chat, and I think you'll enjoy it too enjoy thanks so much for being a listener of this podcast we've created it really to help increase information sharing and understanding of the esports market if you'd like to help us out feel free to leave us a review on whatever podcast platform you do and make sure to share this with your friends hopefully we've been able to provide some fantastic information to you and a bit of a learning experience over this period of time whether you're looking to skill up enter the industry or you're just looking to monitor to see how things are going if you'd like to put yourself forward as a guest suggest any others or ask any questions Feel free to connect with us at bigesports.gg or on any of the social media platforms at bigesports underscore gg. Stu, thanks so much for joining me today, mate. I think you're probably the second or third CEO to come onto this podcast, so it's awesome to have someone of your caliber. Oh, well, thank you. I, um, I enjoy your podcast. I enjoy your LinkedIn uh, content, so it's great to to uh, to meet you virtually, uh, at least over uh, over the internet and, and looking forward to today's conversation. Yeah, thanks, mate. I, I appreciate the, the comments about LinkedIn. I've been getting a few of those recently and I always try to express to people that I am actually trying very hard. It's actually not easy to create content and to keep so active online at all times and, and I'm not even editing videos and that kind of stuff. So it really gives me an insight into what some of these YouTubers and Twitch streamers go through. It, it can be hell when you've you know, from the outside, I think it looks easy. You go, oh, that person's just posting, but it does take a lot of effort and consideration. Oh, yeah, absolutely. I think that's one of the things I've learned to have a lot of respect for over the last few years is just what it takes to be a content creator. And, you know, the first rule is just keep posting, I think, right? You have to <laughs> keep the uh, keep the content machine flowing for sure. Yeah, and as you know, and as, as hype as Gary Vee can be sometimes, I, I saw him speak live in Melbourne and there was there was a really good takeaway I got from that where he said that a lot of people artificially gives themselves a cap on what they can and can't post or how many times they can post. There's unwritten rules like on Facebook, you know, when I was a community manager, thermal take, you shouldn't post more than two times a day at most and three days a week. And on Instagram, on your grid post, it has to be, a, you know, a heavily curated, well-edited post and you can't do more than one a day. And on LinkedIn, you're only supposed to add certain people. And I think that when you break down those barriers inside your head and start to break those molds, which sounds weird in itself even to say those words out loud, which which I have yeah. done recently, um, it just seems to be such a better experience where sometimes I'll just queue up three to four posts in a row on LinkedIn. My brain will be screaming at me, don't do it, don't do it. Yeah. And when I did it the other day, it's it's been my best day for engagement ever. I think I had three posts that got over 100 likes in a single day. So. You know, don't listen to yourself sometimes would be my advice. <laughs> oh, that's right. I, I think, in, you know, sometimes the the stuff that does best is unexpected, right? It's very, you know, same thing happens with games. It's very difficult sometimes hmm. to really know how 
the public will react to something and you do have to learn to kind of when to listen to that internal voice and when to, um, you know, just just be open and experiment and see what people think. Yeah, that's actually that's a really good point. And, and that's something I'd like to discuss. But hey, let's less about me, more about you. Tell me a little bit about your history in, in games and esports and um, what your role is today. Yeah, sure. The, uh, you know, in terms of history, gaming is a little bit of a third career for me. I had started uh, my career up in uh, up in New York right out of uh, university where I would spend some time in banking and a little bit uh, of time working for Viacom and the entertainment segment. Uh, transitioned sometime in the mid-90s uh, over to a uh, over to, this was, you know, the days, early days of the internet and, and transition to a startup tech company, uh, here in Atlanta, which is where I still am today. That was focused more on, um, very boring retail technology supporting, you know, uh, technology for big, big box retailers and restaurants, things like that. And then wound mm -hmm. up, um, really through the owner of that company that I moved uh, moved to and joined in the mid-90s, wound up being the founder of Hyra Studios uh, several years later. And, yeah, so I'd risen to be the chief technology officer of, uh, of one of his companies. Uh, and so after he had founded Hi-Res and they kind of got a couple of years in and were needing an operations person to help them, uh, kind of gear up all the technology and things they needed to launch their first game. I came on board at Hi-Res. That was almost 12 years ago now, and it's been a crazy ride at Hi-Res since then. We released our first game was a, a game called Global Agenda. We then um, made a game called Tribes Ascend um, and then really hit our stride in around 2012 when we released uh, Smite, released Paladin soon thereafter, uh, Realm Royale last year, uh, and now we're, uh, you know, very busy supporting all of, you know, those last three games, uh, as live services, as well as working on our next title, which is a, uh, a tactical action shooter called Rogue Company. But, uh, you know, high res has about, we're based in Atlanta. We have about 450 employees. Uh, and really we, we have an extreme focus on making free to play competitive. Uh, multiplayer action games that span across, um, you know, all, all platforms. So that's really where our focus is. And, and that's led us obviously to, uh, uh, to dabble in quite a bit in esports, uh, through, uh, through Smite and Paladins, especially. Yeah. So I wanted to go back to something you said quickly. And it's not, it's not a question I had written down, but I scribbled it down quickly. Mm -hmm. I'd love to get your ideas or thoughts or processes. I don't even know how to properly ask this question, but what goes through your mind when a game comes out of nowhere, like Flappy Birds, um, hits the top of, you know, the iOS Android charts or, you know, Untitled Goose game makes a ton of money. Do you feel like, damn, I wish I had that idea? Um, is it interesting to you that it's a, you know, maybe equalizes the playing field and stops big corporates just making all the AAA titles and money? I'd, I'd love to get your thoughts on that. Yeah, I mean, I, I think there's a there's a certain aspect of gaming that's just very Darwinian, right? It's it's uh, a constantly evolving space. We're all learning from all the other games uh, that are out there, uh, and you know, sometimes there are uh, you know random mutations that really work in a special way, right? And uh, sometimes those random mutations come from uh, from the big guys, and uh, 
who were able to pour a lot of resources in it. But I think sometimes you, you know, they come from unexpected places. And I mean, even in the last year, you know, a little closer to, to the space we operate and we don't do too much in mobile, but uh, a little closer to the space we operate in, you saw what happened with the, um, the Dota auto chess mod. Right. So you yeah. like, yeah. like a handful of uh, kids out in China working on, you know, just doing mod engines, kind of taking some inspiration from other mods that had happened in China around, you know, using the Warcraft engine, uh, some other ideas that had floated around, put it together in a very special way. And literally overnight, right, you've got this new genre that suddenly, you know, everyone and their brother is jumping into. Uh, to try to mm. capitalize on the success of that. So, uh, you know, to us, that's exciting, right? I mean, you know, when we're not just part of the company, we're a part, you know, we're gamers. So I think it's always exciting to see uh, new ideas um, emerging that gamer, you know, that gamers are really attracted to no matter where those ideas come from. Yeah. And I think one, one thing I find more in the gaming and esports market than anywhere else, except for maybe traditional sports, is that the people who work in the industry are the target market. And I feel like that's such an advantage. Even working for companies like Corsair and Thermaltake in the past, you know, there are people who are there who aren't really gamers and don't necessarily understand the products. And you see it in, you know, medical sales or car dealerships and, and things like that. But I feel like that does give us all a competitive advantage as a whole to push each other further. Oh, absolutely. And I think, you know, I mean, this is, you know, like I said, I've had a couple different careers before gaming and, you know, nothing beats working in games for a living, right? I mean, it's a lot, mm. uh, it's a lot more, uh, I, I tell people it beats working for a living, right? You get to come in and, and, uh, worry about games every day and, and, uh, play games for a living. Uh, it's, you know, it has its hard days. It's a lot more difficult than it looks like from the outside. Uh, yeah. but it, uh, it is, uh, you know, it beats the alternative, I would say, right? There's just no better industry to work in. And, and it's, um, and like you, you know, like you say, it's part of what makes it so great is the passion that the people working on the games bring to their craft. Yeah. And to expand on some of what you were saying, it's, I think it's every, it's every gaming child's dream to grow up and be a game tester until you realize what that actually entails, which is go over into this corner and jump 373 times while pressing B and see if a glitch happens. <laughs> <laughs> That's right. That's for sure. Yeah. Yeah. They, uh, yeah. You can say, you know, I tell you, you know, uh, riffing on something you said, you know, I think. That's even starting to extend into this content creator universe, right? I mean, I think mm. people don't realize how, you know, you know, my kids are in uh, high school, right? You see, you see these uh, Twitch streamers, YouTube content creators, other sort of folks. That's, that's, uh, that's not easy work, right? I mean, that's a grind uh, to go mm. on and, and, uh, you know, stream a video game for 10 hours a day and every day for, for, you know, years on end and look happy and be engaging. And, um, you know, I think every job when you get into it, I've learned is a lot more uh, difficult, uh, than it seems from the outside. Uh, but at the same time, that also means it's, it's a lot more interesting and rewarding, right? In many mm. ways as well. So, yeah. And I guess, you know, 
things that look fun uh, are always seemingly so easy from the outside, right? Like everyone could be a professional NFL player on a Tom Brady contract, but people don't want to wake up at 6 a.m. every day and work out, you know, twice a day plus do their training and travel and, you know, not see their family and children and eat a very stringent, strict diet and things like that too. So it's very similar. I remember telling people that most easiest example for me about content creating was I did a couple of live PC builds on my Facebook live streams um, when I was kind of a, I don't know, an influencer or a creator in that in that space. And it was a lot of hard work. And the PC that should have probably taken me 45 minutes to build ended up taking an hour and a half. And I was exhausted by the end of it. I had a headache. Like, I didn't want to talk to anyone. I was done because I think that people who aren't in content creation, it was, you know, which is some people that listen to this podcast for information, you are basically the on-screen talent, you're the camera operator, and you're the producer and the script writer at the same time, and you're doing them all live, generally. Oh, yeah, absolutely. And I tell you, the people I really have respect for on that, and anytime you try to do these things, you just realize how hard it is, is, you know, the casters. Esports mm. casters, I think, have an insane job, uh, especially in the smaller end of esports versus the larger end, right? I think when you get into like super high production esports, it gets a little more segregated and the job is, I mean, it's still an incredibly difficult job, but it's, mm. uh, but it's, but you're not necessarily doing nine million things, right? But when you're, um, like a community when you're casting a community esports event and you're the cameraman and the uh uh you know and the broadcasting technician and the talent and and trying to keep track of all this extraordinary you know uh extraordinarily complex gameplay uh that is a uh that's a hell of a job and uh and it's been you know and that's actually been a an area we've recruited folks from not just to be casters, but, but, you know, we have, uh, several designers inside of the company that used to, you know, that started in that type of role, uh, several other people that started in that type of role. And it's, I think that's just, you become such an amazing multitasker, uh, trying to do that. And you learn how to think on your, on your feet and all sorts of other skills that have applicability well beyond just that, um, you know, just, being a caster in esports. Yeah, I have to agree. I've, um, like you were saying, you know, in the early stages of Counter Strike Source and CSGO, I used to run tournaments while commentating them at the same time. Would not recommend. Yeah. But, um, I built some good, I built some good skills out of that. And I think it, it helped me a lot with speaking, um, publicly. I've got this now, especially with so many delays that happen in lower grade esports due to technical issues and, and what have you. I'm great at filling the gap and filling the air. And for me personally, I'd st- I left the industry to study social work for a year. And one of the hardest things in social work and counseling is learning to be okay with silence because when you're on TV, on camera, it's, it's the exact opposite. That's silence right. is, is death. But sitting across from someone who's in an emotional state, it's okay not to, not to talk for 30, 45 seconds, even two minutes, but it's absolute hell <laughs> when you're used to filling the gaps. Oh uh, yeah, I, I never thought about that before. Yeah, that's an interesting uh, career transition to try to make. I can imagine that was that was something else. I think you also get addicted to kind of just the adrenaline rush of it all, right? There's something yeah. about about that uh, juggling all those things at once and trying to make it happen, and always finding a you know having to think of the next thing to say that seems like it creates quite an adrenaline rush. 
Yeah, and I think for anyone listening to this podcast, the uh, episode 60, you can just go to bigesports.gg forward slash 60, and the podcast I did with Toby One, who's a world-renowned um, Australian Dota 2 commentator and has been living overseas for almost a decade now in Germany and then into London commentating large-scale tournaments, including the international grand finals, chatting a lot about this, about exactly like things you were saying, Stu, about the high levels. It's not actually too stressful for him when he's at an event. Most of the time he's got three hours he's supposed to turn up to the international. He does it, you know, he does his commentary, a bit of pre-prep, and he's done. But, you know, that compared to what it used to be like and... The amount of pressure that's put on commentators these days, especially what I see with League of Legends commentators, they have pages and pages and pages of notes. They've got everything planned out. It's crazy. They seem to do more prep than I see from traditional sports commentary. And that's one of the things that's impressed me so much about esports commentators. They seem in such an infant market compared to, you know, the multi-billion dollar sports industry. They often seem much more prepared and professional than these traditional sports commentators do. Yeah, I think some of that just comes from how, you know, one, how demanding the audience is, right? And uh, I think, you've got a, you know, you're interacting and, you know, your audience is giving you real-time feedback, right? And, uh, hmm. you know, I think that, uh, one, you know, especially when you're starting, like like you were talking about in community tournaments and things like that, it does give you, that's a feedback loop that I think helps probably hone people's talent. Uh, in a way that traditional sports broadcasters may not get. Uh, but it's also a, a honing mechanism in, in terms of trying to figure things out. And then it's, and then it's just the complexity of these games, right? I mean, hmm. the, the, uh, you know, to, to understand Dota 2, right? And be able to talk about it in a way that your demanding fans are not going to call you out on, you know, being an idiot for just requires such a, a depth of knowledge around the game that is, um, you, you know, I think even more so uh, than than traditional sports uh, casters need to have. Yeah, yeah, I would say in less friendly or short words, I'd call my my time running community tournaments in Counter Strike Source, particularly, as a trial by fire. <laughs> <laughs> That's probably right. Yeah, coming into the industry, I learn a lot, but yeah, it was a lot of hard work. But I guess take, taking the conversation on to another track, I wanted to discuss something with you. So I had this exact discussion with a friend's uh, partner the other day who's really into art and is thinking about getting into games development. And even yesterday, I went to speak at a high school about employment opportunities in games and esports. And a very common question is asked to me, Chris, do I need a degree to get into the industry? So you've got 450 staff. Give us give us the lowdown on, on your um, ideas around degree v no degree. You know, I think it depends a little bit on what area uh, you're wanting to specialize in, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, there are certain areas where the answer is, yeah, absolutely, right? I mean, uh, especially when you're looking at um, computer programmers, um, you know, where you might not only want a degree, but master's degrees. Um, mm. But there's a, uh, you know, I think in, you know, when you get into the art parts of the field, I think the degree can be extremely helpful just because it, you know, uh, the, the focused education, the mentor, you know, the mentorship, the kind of forcing you to sit down and hone your craft, uh, you know, that, uh, that university provides is very important. But at the same time, honestly, you know, some of the most talented artists we have on staff here did not go to, um, you know, traditional, 
you know, did not go to a university or a traditional school, but mm. they, you know, they just had inside of them the, uh, the drive to really hone their craft to just, uh, you know, an amazing level, you know, and combine that with a lot of just great raw talent. Right. Um, mm. now in, inside of esports, I think it's, um, uh, you know, I think it's much more important that you have experience than you have the education and some of the, you know, I think if you're a content creator, um, if you're, you know, trying to be an esports caster, if you're trying to do some of these other things, I think what university provides, uh, is, is a social network around you that can help you, you know, improve and it pro might provide a bunch of opportunities for you, right? If your college is giving, you know, has esports teams or other things that you could participate mm. in. But I would, you know, but we're, you're mainly not going to be judged on whether or not you went to university. You're going to be judged on what you're out there creating, right? And so mm. the question is, how much does that help you? Uh, you know, how much does that education help you? Uh, do the things you need to do in order to to create content at the right level to get recognized. Yeah, I agree. And I think I think the first time I asked this question on a podcast was probably the 30s or 40s episodes with um uh with Anne from Fanatic. And you know, I think her answer was quite poignant. In it's very similar to you. In number one, some people require degrees. You know, I don't really want to go to a doctor that hasn't studied, for right. example. But um. Now that esports is growing as well, the need for people with professional qualifications and degrees are increasing. You know, whether it's an MBA to run the business or whether it's a um, finance related degree for your CFO um, or the people doing your accounting, you know, it's no longer just back of the napkin stuff when you're taking on 30 million euro investments like Team Vitality are. You know, you need some serious weight behind that. But the easiest way to get into the industry is 100% through experience. And you know, my one of my employees here, Nick Geronimo, who does all of our graphics and art, um, etc. He has a honors, I believe his honors, maybe a master's in games design, and he did some AI learning applications. But you know, for him, his honest opinion is that he kind of wishes he didn't, because a he didn't end up working in that field, but b you know, for the stuff that he did, he didn't really need a degree. And you know, we're based here in, in Playside Studios as well, a fifty-five person games dev studio who mainly focus on mobile. Um, and now branching into influencer apps and, you know, most of their staff don't require a degree to complete their job. So I think it's something that people should, you know, definitely consider as getting into the market. My advice always is if you want to get into esports, pick one angle and stick with it. For me, I started out as a commentator and I wanted to be the best in the world and I joined a commentary company and just kept asking for more experience and more roles and, you know, just got them into new games and started doing marketing with them and that enabled me to grow from there. And, you know, I feel like a great way to get into the esports industry right now is there's so many events that are on around the world. Go and volunteer at them. You can get hands-on with the brands, the sponsors, the players. Um, go and volunteer for an esports team. Every Tier 2 or Tier 3 team needs some sort of social media support or something low-level, quite similar. And then you can get a high-touch experience in a, in a company that enables you to take on so many different roles and then you can kind of hone your craft and decide from there. Yeah, I think that's really good advice. I mean, there's no substitute for just the work, right? And a lot of these, uh, you know, whether you're, you know, I, I think I'm not just esports, but gaming, right? Whether you're a programmer, whether you're an artist, whether you're trying to be a caster, a content creator, even a QA tester, just that the time and seat 
seeing a lot of things, learning how to adapt to them, things like that makes a huge difference. And so I think, and just being, you know, able and willing to put in the hard work goes um, just a lot further than I think people um, you know, give it credit for. And, mm. uh, and what is also, I mean, it's a very hard industry. I mean, you know, we look at, uh, you know, we take about uh, 15 to 20 interns a summer as an example. And, you know, we get mm -hmm. about 300 plus applications for each applicant that's accepted. Right. Oh, wow. You know, so, you know, it's a, uh, it's, it's hyper competitive um, industry, uh, you know, both gaming and esports. Um, and it's, you know, I think it disproportionately rewards those that are just, you know, out there unafraid to, uh, you know, unafraid in the beginning to fail, right? And go mm. out there, learn from their failures, uh, and keep going long after other people would have given up. Can you touch on for me as to what the games development market in the U.S. is like as a whole? You know, it's uh, as an employment market, I'm assuming. Yeah, in yeah. employment market or, or just the, the business market as well, whether you, whether you feel it's you know, positive, are, are people leaving to go to other countries? Just a, It's a pretty open-ended question and kind of on purpose. I just want to see where you take it. Yeah, and I'll, I'll start with the employment side. I mean, I think the, uh, um, you know, the, the U.S. is a huge, uh, a huge country, and you tend to see in the video gaming market that it's um, disproportionately skewed towards the West Coast primarily, right? So you, a lot of the big uh, video game developers are concentrated in, um, you know, Los Angeles or Seattle, uh, San Francisco, San Diego. Uh, there's a couple of other areas that have grown up uh, to be reasonable-sized gaming hubs outside of the West Coast. You look at Austin, Texas, for example. You look at... Uh, hmm. Boston has become a hub, uh, but it's uh, so for a developer like us, which is based in Atlanta, it's um, uh, it's a little bit of a challenging uh, employment market for us to find the right talent uh, because we've got to go, uh, you know, very often we're especially for going after experienced talent. Uh, we're very much, you know, we're often having to bring them. Uh, not from Atlanta, but from outside of, of town. We are lucky here. Uh, you know, Atlanta is a great global city and we have some amazing universities and schools and we're able to source a lot of local junior talent, but experienced talent we're normally having to recruit kind of far afield. Uh, as, a, as a business, I think it's, you know, I think it's, the gaming industry in whole all around the world, I think is, um, you know, continues to perform well. It's a hyper competitive hit based, uh, market. So that puts lots of pressure, uh, on, on any one company, uh, to kind of produce that hit that can sustain them. But I think it's still a great industry. The employment market is, is, um, you know, we're always on the search uh, for great, strong talent. So I think if you have that talent, it's a great market for you. Uh, I am disappointed in the U.S. right now on uh, just how, you know, how difficult it is for us to bring non-U.S. citizens into the country, uh, which, you know, I think that's, that's a, um, 
uh, in a industry like ours where it's so uh, uh, talent driven, how well you can do, you know, it's best for us where we can recruit talent, the best talent for whatever we're trying to do from wherever in the world. And, uh, you know, it's uh, been a challenge for us at times where we're uh, to bring in uh, when that talent is not American uh, to bring them in. And that's something that's gotten more difficult in the last few years. Uh, hmm. that, that, for example, was one of the drivers that brought us. We recently, uh, this year, we formed a studio in uh, in Brighton in the UK, which is a, where we have had our marketing operations for several years now, European marketing operations. But we for, but had never done game development outside of Atlanta. Uh, hmm. And we actually formed a studio uh, in Brighton in part just to give us access to talent that was kind of unreachable to us uh, from Atlanta just due to the immigration scenario in the country right now. Mm. So we, we talked a little bit off microphone about this and, um, you know, as we discussed, I'm also friends with the CEO of uh, Kanga, who's a recent... Uh-huh entrant into your Paladins Pro League, and he's mentioned to me some government and local council support around you guys. So I'd love for you to touch on that. You know, why Atlanta? Yeah, I think, you know, one of the things that's really helped us as a company is, is the, you know, uh, the, the state government uh, here in Georgia, so uh, which is where Atlanta's, Atlanta is, is mm. uh, has been really... Uh, really supportive of the industry, you know, both the video game industry and the broader entertainment industry. So we're able to take um, some, take advantage of some really attractive uh, tax incentives uh, that really help us. It really incents us to hire people in Atlanta and to keep our business here in Atlanta. And so that is, um, you know, on the game development side, they have a program that basically uh, rewards us from a tax perspective around R&D that we do. So anything that is um, focused on new game development. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then we have, and then on the esports side, what's been really interesting to us is there's a, um, the, the state gives ex- extremely liberal uh, tax incentives for the film and television industry mm-hmm. uh, that we've been able to take advantage of with esports, and it's basically and you know as uh, under the way the law is treated, live streaming is basically analogous to television in that example, mm-hmm. right? And you know we've been able to get uh, the program basically means that if we spend a dollar. Uh, doing an esports broadcast here and you know in the state of Georgia, we can get almost thirty cents of that dollar back uh, from mm-hmm. state tax incentives, and that is uh, really starts to change. Uh, you know, it really starts to make some things that might not make make you know total sense without that incentive uh, start to make sense, and it's allowed us to. Um, Strategy-wise, with esports, for example, that led us to build. Um, we have our own kind of live media and, and esports broadcasting studio here adjacent to our office. It's it's uh, hmm. fairly large. It can support uh, uh, two land, you know, two land events, simultaneous land events, and about five simultaneous broadcasts. 
uh, and uh, we're able to build that. And a lot of the work that comes out of that studio, you know, the economics are made more attractive to us through these state tax incentives. Mm. And for, you know, for those people who listen to this podcast that are looking to get into esports business and stuff, it's a whole, it's a whole new world when you start talking about these tax incentives and <laughs> and things like that. I feel like setting up a company, you're basically ready to ready to grab a free degree in that area. That's what I feel like, anyway. Absolutely, and and it's a uh, you know to us, it's really made. We think Atlanta, and there's been several articles now in in uh, local press around this, uh, and in the broader esports uh, industry press. We think Atlanta, even beyond high res, is positioned to become one of the great hubs of esports, uh, in part because of these tax incentives. Uh, we also have a, you know, we have a, um, you know, the busiest airport in the world. You can get a direct flight practically anywhere from here. Um, uh, it's, so it's easy to bring in teams from all over the world. Uh, and we, and the labor cost base here is way lower than New York and LA. But we have, uh, you know, this is a, a place that has a lot of television experience, which is important as you get into esports. So, you know, we have, uh, CNN was here. There's, uh, or is here. There's lots of broadcast networks here. So there's a good talent pool, but it's a lot cheaper, uh, than in LA and New York. So we're very pro, you know, not just for, for high res esports, but, but, you know, we're kind of boosters for, uh, Esports in uh, in this part of the country. Mm, so let's um, kind of cap off the discussion about the games development before we get into some more of the esports stuff. Are you? I mean, you you identified high res as creating you know titles that are focused on being competitive. Is that always in your in the front of your mindset when thinking about some new IP? And can you touch on you know are there the top five things you need to consider when a game wants to become an esport? Yeah, I think, you know. We, we very much, you know, we prefer to really focus exclusively on free to play multiplayer competitive action games, uh, you know, that are in first or third person. That's kind mm-hmm. of our thing. Uh, and when you look through the history of the studio, uh, we've done some side projects here and there. We might continue to do some side projects, but that's really where the focus of the studio has always been. And we, uh, and as I tell people, you know, it's, we've been around for 15 years and I feel like it's taken us that long to get, you know, to know what we're doing. And, uh, you know, so if we do something else, it'll take us another 15 years to figure that out. Right. Uh, but it's, uh, you know, it's complex. There's a lot of factors to take into play as you get into, into that world, especially multi-platform running, you know, as a service, all these other sorts of things. In terms of how we design for competition in esports, it's, it's quite a tricky balancing act. I think you, you know, we do a lot of things to design our games from the ground up to be uh, competitive and to, uh, and to, uh, and to have aspects around it that are very social and help build community. Because you know yeah. we're uh, we believe very strongly that you know you know one we focus really just almost exclusively on free to play games. The secret to the free to play business model is long term engagement of your fan base. 
right? You need to to uh, not only attract a lot of players into your game, but you need to keep them around for a long time. And mm. engagement of and and how engaged those players are, how much they're playing every day, is almost directly linear to how the game is going to perform economically. So we see. So we do a lot of things design wise to focus on the competitive side mm-hmm. uh, and to prepare the game as an esport. At the same time, I think we've learned that you can't really. You have to be careful not to kind of force esports on a game too early. Um, you know, I think there's. You know, you can kind of you create the framework. You focus on making sure the game is, is one, you know, super fun and engaging and has the right um, path and mastery path, right? Which is mm-hmm. normally, you know, everyone always says a game needs to be easy to learn and, and hard to master, right? Which is a, actually a very difficult mix to get right. So you've got to get that right. And then yeah. you, uh, and then you focus on the community, but we found that a lot of the the whether or not the game takes the next step from just being a competitive multiplayer game is depends a lot, I think, on where the community wants to take it. And if you try to thrust the esports on it too soon, too aggressively before the community has really um, gotten the right foundation, we think that's less likely to be successful uh, than. Um, then kind of it's like growing a plant, right? You kind of get everything right. You get the soil right. You plant the seeds. You water it. You treat it nicely. But the game has, you know, it's the community has to decide um, that this game that really hits the right place. I think in order for it to take the the real next step to become a true esport. Yeah, and I, th- I think I yeah you know, I wanted to highlight a couple of things you said out of there. Number one is um especially these days it's so important to build a community around a game. It seems that community is everything. And looking at games like Dota Two and League of Legends that also do this super well, or whether you've got a game like CS:GO where you know even people like me, the community kind of built itself over that period of time over the past decade or two of of Counter Strike. That's you know, such an important way. And also I feel like after doing a little bit of research ourselves here internally on games on Steam, the the ones that are around for a long time, it does always seem to be those online team-based multiplayer games. And, you know, I'm not sure if that's because if you're playing a game by yourself, it's pretty easy to skip, like like the gym, for example. But if you've got a mate or two or three or four saying, Chris, get to the gym, we're going, I'm picking you up on the way, the same way that my mates say, Chris, I don't care what you're doing, you're playing a game of Dota with me right now it's much easier to drag you back into the ecosystem. Yeah, that's right. I think also the player, you know, you know, one of the challenges with single player games is the game is the content, if that makes sense, right? Mm. Uh, The sole content. So you've got, if you're trying to make a, a, say, a single player kind of PVE game experience, right? As a developer, you've got this massive burden to create enough content to keep that player engaged for hundreds or thousands of hours. Right. Yeah. I think when you build a multi, when you build the right kind of multiplayer gaming framework, the players are the content. Right. And, yeah. and I think that's where esports becomes very interesting as well is, is, you know, a lot of the reasons people get so engaged by watching Twitch and watching esports is to see like, 
what are um, what are players doing with all these tools that the game developers gave them? How are they doing it? And and it's uh, and I think that creates the longevity. It's very hard to create enough content if it all has to be in your game uh, to you know engage people for thousands of hours. But with multiplayer mm-hmm. gaming, I, I think you're dead on that this social aspect of being able to to play with your friends is massive. But I think there's also just something of the players themselves keep the game very fresh. They're constantly evolving metas. They're, you know, when you're playing against other humans, humans are kind of inherently unpredictable, right? So you, you're always, everyone's always constantly adapting and they're keeping a lot of things fresh about the experience um, without you having to have uh, just enormous teams of people creating new boss fights or whatever, as an example. Yeah, that's so true. I can think, you know, putting a profile on myself, it's usually, I like to play competitive games casually now that I don't compete anymore. So, you know, Dota 2 is probably my main game. But if I do play a single player game, I like it to be not too story driven and fairly easy because I do it to relax. And I recently just finished Borderlands 2. And I remember thinking to myself, I feel sorry for the developers because there's so much content in this game. It must have been such a grind to make all of this content. And now, you know, I've got... 30 hours maybe into that game, did a whole bunch of side missions and, you know, I'm not going to install it again and play it again in my life most likely. However, Dota 2, I got sucked in through the international in 2013 into that marketing hype. So in my experience, TI works. Um, and I've got two and a half, three thousand hours in that game now over the past six years and I don't see myself stopping anytime soon. And every year I'm spending more money on the season passes compendium you know i'm part of the ecosystem i'm on the subreddit you know dota 2 subreddit chatting following people on twitter yeah you know i think that's you know that's an easy use case study for you or i mean another game with a bunch of content right like like gta 5 not only does it cost tens or hundreds of millions of dollars to complete but it also takes years and years and years absolutely yeah and you know we kind of learned that lesson early you know our the, the very first game we tried to make as uh, developers uh, was probably the most ambitious game we've tried to make. It was a, a game called Global Agenda, which was uh, real, a, a shooter MMO. It was kind of very mm. similar to Destiny, before, but, you know, predates Destiny. But we were trying to make it with this, you know, 40-person team and the and it had everything possibly imaginable it had you know a pvp but it also had you know four or five different pve modes open world all these other sorts of things mm. and you know we quickly learned like oh my god we just spent the you know the entire team just worked four months to create this new open world zone and the players have chewed through it in four days you know, it's like, it's like you know, yeah. the math here is not going to work, you know, and it's a, um, uh, and, you know, meanwhile, we were looking, you know, this is one of the things that led to the development of Smite, you know, meanwhile, we were looking around and, and we started Smite and um, right kind of towards the end of 2010, which was really before League of, Le- you know, League of Legends was out. And starting to get, you know, really good reception, but definitely before it was really a, anything mass market. But we were looking around going like, these guys just focused on one mode 
and make, you know, and they're enjoying this incredible success. Why are we out here trying to make a game with, you know, 50 different modes and all these different ways of playing? Let's really hone in. That's, we can do less with more, hone in and find an, ex, you know, a unique experience, uh, where the players are the content and where just the game construct is creates so mm. many possibilities for players to interact with it. Um, that it's just endlessly replayable. And Stu, I'm 100% stealing that line about how in multiplayer um, games, the the people who are playing other content. I like it. <laughs> I like it a lot. Good. And it's it's always hard to explain that about, um, you know, another thing that you said is that a game has to be simple to pick up, but hard to master. And I feel like, you know, Counter-Strike in, in its three iterations or so have, has been, you know, one of the best esports experiences of my life. And, and I think one of the best, most pure esports titles of all time, because exactly that you can hold down left click on a P90 and run down mid on dust two in a casual match and have a bit of fun. But you're trying to explain to people that, you know, I was the fourth best team in Australia, probably ranked 50th in the world. Yet I could tell you that on dust two on a certain strat on a minute 37, I, you know, had to throw a flashbang at this certain pixel and a smoke at this one and then another flash and I'd run out third in order from the mid doors and I would check these three angles first and there's just so, so much intricacy to it that, you know, it just seems never ending skill ceiling. Yeah. And I think, you know, I think one of the things to appreciate about that as well is that is also hard, right? Getting that, get making a counter strike is, is is really right how long since they you know the first counter-strike game right it's probably been 20 yeah, it's years like 15 20 right? years yeah. yeah something like that and so it's uh you know and and when i think actually when you look at most of the really popular esports titles today they all come from a lineage where they were able to be refined over a very long period of time in order to create that experience you described right mm. So, you know, Counter-Strike, while it's a simple game and in principle, right, it's been really honed and refined to this incredible level over, you know, almost two decades. Uh, when you look at MOBAs, right, it's got a long lineage starting with the Warcraft 3 mods, uh, you know, what Riot did with League of Legends and kind of taking that mod and bringing it to the masses was was a brilliant well-executed move. Um, you've got, you know, and that of course evolved as well, separate on um, a separate evolutionary tree into Dota 2 and, and games like Smite. Um, and so I think it's, uh, you know, and, and even uh, when you look at the battle Royale, right, that was really, again, a genre that emerged from the mod community mm. uh, and there, you know, got refined incrementally over time for, you know, probably five or six years before kind of PUBG and Fortnite came onto the market and really broke it, you know, the genre mass market. So these things take time. Uh, they, they tend to emerge evolutionary over uh, a series of years. Um, and, uh, and, you know, there's a hidden depth and complexity there that's very hard to create from scratch. Mm. And and one of the other things I like to say to people is that I feel that an esports title at its core, maybe even at the engine level, needs to have a limited and controlled amount of randomness. So a little bit of randomness is okay in a game or, you know, what people in the esports industry call RNG, 
but too much is unacceptable. So I often try to explain that as a football isn't, you know, in the NFL or the AFL, isn't a fully round object. So if it's going to bounce, it can be a bit hard to pick up, but there is a bit of calculation around where it can bounce. The same way in Dota 2, an enemy can have an item that has a 25% chance to mini-stun, but you can see they have that item, so you can calculate that factor into there. But if it was too random in the fact that randomly every single round, one team lost all their money in Counter-Strike, that's far too random to be able to be a competitive eSport because you can't hone your skills. There's too much... um, luck and not enough skill involved would you would you agree with that kind of analysis yeah i think that's i think that's generally right i I, you know i think there are you know i think one of the things about esports though and it's something that kind of mirrors traditional sports is Mm -hmm. there's a bunch of different kinds of sports right you know Mm. obviously that each have kind of uh bring something different to the table and and are interesting uh, and I think you see that with, and, you know, ranging from right at the extremes, right? You've got extraordinarily skill-based sports, uh, like, uh, like, uh, uh, soccer or, or basketball. Uh, and then you have, um, but then you have like the WWE, right? Which is just basically glorified entertainment. Right? Mm. And so it's a, um, I think you're starting, you know, I think they're, the really strong competitive team-based esports, right? When you look at League of Legends, when you look at Dota 2, when you look at Counter-Strike, they very much ad- adhere to exactly what you said. I think there are some examples where there's more RNG, right? But it's still been, but there's just the right amount of RNG so that player skill really comes to the top. And, you know, I think if you look at Hearthstone, for example, right, you've got a game that's kind of like built at its foundation with a certain amount of randomness, but it's the, the randomness that creates the opportunity for the player to display their skill. And the battle royale genre, I think, is, is, you know, uh, has a certain amount of randomness at its core, right? What weapons are you looting when? Uh, can make a, uh, which is relatively random, can make such a huge difference in how you mm. perform in a match. So it's a, uh, but I also think because of that randomness, right, I think um, the battle royale genre has generated a very different kind of esports uh, community uh, and viewership mentality than, for example, the, uh, and league structures and everything else than uh, Counter-Strike and League of Legends have, right? Which I would say are much more pure and smiling, of course, well, uh, mm. but which are in Paladins, which are Overwatch, which I, you know, I think that list of games are very, um, you know, are much more akin to the larger traditional esports and are very strict competitive oases where randomness is generally bad. Uh, but there are other examples where it can still be compelling entertainment to watch a little bit of randomness. Yeah, yeah, for sure. And, and like we, touching on one thing you said as well before we move on to some next topics, um, is that, yeah, it's important to remember that esports is a category as much as anything else. And, and when someone asks, you know, Chris, can you teach me about esports? Um, and they expect you to be an expert in all areas. It's kind of like saying, well, do you know, uh, who the best players, teams, sponsors and influencers are in tennis, the Australian Football League, the NFL, soccer and NASCAR? <laughs> Probably not. That's right. And that's why, you know, sometimes some games fall behind. I don't have anywhere near as much knowledge about smart as I would like to have. 
um, or often even about League of Legends, as I would like to have. But, you know, due to even some personal biases, I know a lot more about Dota 2 because I like watching those tournaments. And I know about Paladins because some of my friends play in the Pro League and <laughs> things like that. So it's always hard, but that's why I think in esports, I mean, for people listening that often ask me where do I get my information from, it's why I have a very curated Twitter feed, for example. I follow specific people. Um, for a reason, and that's, you know, barely follow anyone on Twitter without a really specific reason, and it's because of that, and similar to LinkedIn and my Google News Feed and things like that too, you need good sources to get information from, because it's a wide world of so much information, it's the best and the worst thing about esports at the same time, is that there's so much going on. That's right, I, th- I think as, you know, as esports evolves and is obviously now becoming more mass market and growing, I, I think that'll become, you know, uh, that'll be a big thing about it is that it's not all the same and there's room for, you know, there's a room for a WWE product in esports, right? Just like there's a room for a tennis product or an, and a, uh, you know, Australian rules football product, right? I use all of those mm-hmm. metaphorically as right. Kind of different. Each one of these has very different league frameworks has very different, uh, uh, just everything, right? Draws different audiences for different reasons. And I think you're starting to see that, like, you know, to me, like one of the really fascinating evolutions in esports over the last year, for example, or, you know, last couple of years, really with the emergence of Fortnite was kind of a, I, th- I think Fortnite brought kind of a little bit more of a mixture of, of, taking something beyond just the competitive framework of the game, right? Here are, you know, only the best players play and the best wins, and it's this hyper, and it's, you know, like Counter-Strike or Smite or or Paladins or League of Legends are trying to create this, you know, know, this, this competitive sanctuary where everything is clean and the best players rise to the top. I think mm-hmm. with Fortnite, you've gotten started to get into some models where it's kind of like um, the best players tend to rise to the top, but but you're, it's also viewing it as fundamentally an entertainment product, right? And we want to make sure that the, you know, run a lot more competitions that are uh, between, uh, you know, the, uh, you know, that, that are, heavily weighted towards content creators being able to do mm. well, things along those lines, right? Things that they know mm. will draw a lot of eyeballs and, and, and bring a lot more uh, interest in, in what they're trying to do a lot more engagement in what they're trying to do, but aren't necessarily, uh, you know, fully aligned around being competitively pure if that makes sense. Yeah, and, and I feel like a lot of people haven't discussed this openly besides some some Twitter beefs every now and then, but the emergence of Battle Royale esports, specifically Fortnite, has been so polarizing for the esports industry. So many claims of it's not a true esport, it's not a pure esport or a real one. You know, Battle Royale has too much randomness. Um, there's too much emphasis on content creators, and I think that... Epic have made it quite clear they don't care about the traditional esports model. A, they have enough money not to care on enough players. Um, but B, you know, they refuse to promote certain teams during the World League. They only promote certain jerseys to be worn during their tournaments. A lot of time players have to use the tournament operator-provided peripherals even, which puts you at a competitive disadvantage if you're not used to using those kinds or even if you're like me and get cramps, hand cramps if you use small mice and things like that too. Um 
So it's been a really interesting thing for me to watch. And my often answer to that is give the, the people what they want. They have so many, so many people are playing Fortnite. It's what the kids want to play. So who cares if they want to call it an esport and they're winning prizes and they're having fun and it's a competition. That's all good with me. Yeah. Now look, the same, similar things happen in, um, uh, you know, to me, it's exactly give, give people what they want to see and there will be, and it creates niches, right? There's niches, mm. of, uh, you know, there are niches of people that, you know, for battle Royale, for example, right. They want the pure competitive experience. Uh, and that potentially, right. Opens up an opportunity for someone to come in and fill that, uh, need, uh, to, to provide that pure competitive experience. Whereas there's, um, you know, I think Epic is, is clearly their perform, you know, their strategy is brilliant, right? Cause their results have been brilliant. Uh, and it's, and it's, hmm. I think been great for the esports industry in total, right? Cause they, they brought a lot more, uh, mass market attention to the industry overall. They brought a lot more sponsors and eyeballs into the ecosystems that, you know, now create opportunities for other people. So yeah, same thing happens in traditional sports, right? I mean, there's, there's different, you know, I mean, here in the United States, we have, you know, the NFL, which is a very pure kind of football, but then you have like the XFL, which is kind of like just, Mm. They, you know, they're like all about crazy rules that try to drive up the excitement and things like that. Right. And they're way mm. different size markets. Uh, but you know, there are niches for every, um, you know, there's, there's no reason these t- different models can't coexist with each other and they're just serving, uh, you know, the communities that are most interested in, in the product you're delivering. Yeah, so let's let's jump in quickly to something that's so important in in um, esports and publishers and developers is the model. So for you, you know, touching on the Paladins Pro League, which which I have some experience with, it's a, it's kind of a closed loop franchise style system. So why that model instead of something like Dota Two or CS:GO, which is very open? I'd, I'd love to learn about your experience behind the scenes and why you chose to go down that path. Yeah, I think I mean one of the interesting things about high res is uh, we've now had multiple titles that have uh, had some sort over, you know, seven or eight years now that have each had um, some level of, of esports component to them. And mm-hmm. none of, you know, a bunch of them have done well enough to be self, you know, paladins and smite most especially, right. Have done well enough to kind of, create a great self-sustained community that, uh, you know, that we've been able to keep going for years and, and think that we'll be able to keep going for years more. But at the same time, neither has risen to the level of um, some of the, you know, of a CSGO or League of Legends. In part, that's actually allowed us to be hyper-experimental, right? So when you talk about esports models, I think we've tried them all practically, you know, we've really, uh, we've gone through so many evolutions of how to run our esports. you know, where we experimented with this, year, you know, it's really interesting to me this year, we experimented with the, um, uh, in both the Smite Pro League and the Paladins uh, Premier League, which is the top level competition in each sport. We experimented with bringing, uh, having, a uh, a closed system, a fixed number of teams where all of the teams came to Atlanta 
uh, lived here or on salary and mm-hmm. uh, played uh, on salary through their teams. That were, it's not like the, uh, uh, you know, it is, it's a little more akin to like the LCS, right? So it's teams that are brought into the league and they, are, they qualify uh, for the league. Uh, but then they, they're guaranteed a spot in the league for, you know, a period of time. And, um, and all of the land, all the matches are on land. All the players are in Atlanta. You're able to mix, mm-hmm. you know, European players with American players, with Australian players. If you can build a super team, all that other sort of stuff is on the table. Yeah. And I think it's been a great experiment for us, you know, in terms of what drove us to do that. I think we saw. The, you know, one, the state tax incentives we talked about earlier kind of rewarded us for having these competitions here in Georgia and on land in a way Mm. that, you know, kind of made the, uh, that alone, it's more expensive to operate in that way, but it offsets some of those expenses. So as we talk about other benefits, it could make sense. Uh, Two, we thought the quality of our uh, content could go up quite a bit with the players here all year. Right. We're able to mm-hmm. uh, one, all the matches are on land. That's kind of an inherently uh, better experience to the players are here so they can work with our teams on creating content and other sort of things to engage fans. And, you know, so much of the esports experience is not just about showing the games, but it's about building, uh, you know, building up the players to be stars and make making them. Uh, their own type of kind of many celebrities inside of the community. It gave us more opportunities to do that. Mm. Uh, and I think it's been a, um, you know, it's interesting to me. I, I think, you know, if I'm like just totally open book, I think it's a model that's, that's been, we tried it with both Smite and Paladins this year. I mm-hmm. think it was more, um, you know, to me, the model was more successful with Smite than with Paladins. Um, mm-hmm. for, diff- for different reasons. I think, I think Smite's a, a very, um, you know, is, is a very mature esport. Uh, it's been around for years, has, uh, players and a fan base that's extremely well established. And, uh, I think you would actually brought a lot of excitement to the sport by having the players here. And we were able to get teams of European and American teams together. Uh, Smite also, uh, for weird historical reasons, kind of, uh, based on the, the publisher relationships we had with the game when it first came out was, has always been highly dominant as an EU and a game, mm-hmm. uh, versus more global. With Paladins, I think the, the structure's been great. It's been interesting. Um, the, uh, but it's been a little less successful to move to that model in my standpoint, because I think one of the, the, um, uh, one, the, the Paladins, uh, player base is much more global, right? So it's, you know, Paladins has done well in Europe and in North America, but it's also done fantastically in South America. It's done fantastically in Southeast Asia, Russia, uh, 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 Australia, New Zealand. And so we've got a much more global, uh, player base. And we did find actually that we had an enormous number of, of visa issues getting all the players into the country uh, mm. much more so than we had with smite where most of the players that made the pro league were coming from 
the, uh, you know, from Europe or, or North Western Europe or North America. Uh, and then we had, um, and then I think that structure as well, in some ways we were able to support our global communities, uh, really well with that structure. You mentioned Kanga. So, you know, so mm-hmm. there was basically, uh, you know, Australia is, is, has some amazing paladins players. They were able to earn a spot in the, um, you know, in the paladins premier league. Uh, were very well represented. Uh, there was a Brazilian team that likewise, uh, came and, and earned a spot in the Paladins Premier League and was very well represented. But it did, but the framework we had didn't let us, cause it was all on land. There wasn't as many online competitions elsewhere, things like that. And I feel like we kind of underserved the development leagues, I'll call them. Uh, you know, in some of these outer regions in this year's structure. Mm. So it's, it's an interesting kind of, um, uh, there's pros and cons to all these models. I think it's, um, yeah, the, uh, a lot of it too is just kind of how big the ecosystem is. It's, it's a, uh, a, you know, we're right in kind of that mid level range. I think we might make different choices if we were a lot bigger and we would obviously make different choices if we were a lot smaller, uh, as an esport. But it also matters, like I say, how global you are versus being concentrated in certain regions, how, uh, how concentrated the attention towards your esport is towards the top end of the sport versus having, you know, very, uh, engaging, uh, mid-level competitions, things like that. It, it's a complex, uh, soup of different factors. I think that determine what's the right model for your sport at this time. Uh, that is, uh, very game specific, I think, in terms of what is, what is the best model. Yeah. So many things to unpack, <laughs> but you're, no, you're a hundred percent right. There is no best model. And there's a, there's a, um, lengthy discussion I'm having at the moment on both Twitter and LinkedIn with people about crowdfunding in Dota 2 through the compendium versus the League of Legends model. Um, you know, League of Legends players earning 300 to multi-million dollar salaries, 300k to multi-million dollar salaries versus a lot of Dota 2 teams earning lower salaries. But, um, you know, the fourth place at the international is equivalent to first place or is equivalent to the total prize pool of the League of Legends worlds. And, you know, what do those numbers mean? How do you digest them? Like you were saying too about Fortnite before about what's a content creator and influencer versus an esports pro. Um, and, I don't, I don't know exactly what the right word is, but, you know, should we be running tournaments which are only for influencers who already make a bunch of money to win more, or should we be focused more on the development leagues? And same as, like, the issue that you said as well is is what I think the um, League of Legends Oceanic Pro League here in Australia had the same problem with, is what do we focus on more, the development leagues or the pro league, because we can't do both at the same time. So there's so many interesting things you've mentioned about that, and... Another thing I wanted to, to touch on, which is an honest point that I've been developing over a period of time, and I talked to Matt Roche um, from the Pittsburgh Knights slash Pittsburgh Steelers about this in the last podcast, number 61, um, or number 60, sorry, and talking about how I find it really interesting the current esports market in regards to the media attention and the VC attention is that there are what I see as sustainable tier two leagues, like the Paladins Pro League and the Smite Pro League, are not as sexy to VCs 
or to people who are in the news media as something like a $25 million Activision Call of Duty spot or a $20 million Blizzard Overwatch spot plus creating your own facility. And I think that where the market's heading at the moment with teams raising more and more money and losing more and more money, there's bound to be more consolidation in the market. And I think that some of these more Tier 2 and sustainable leagues, like the Paladins Pro League, which has been around for a long time but often overlooked by many people, will start to shine in the future. Do you do you agree? I'm sure you don't want to talk too much too much uh, trash about your competitors, but that's kind of what I. It's kind of it's <laughs> no, my honest thoughts and feelings. Yeah, there's a lot to unpack there. I mean, I I think uh, on multiple levels, uh, you know, I, I think first I'll actually return to uh, the point you made around the difference between kind of the let's call it the LCS model of of player salaries and things like that versus the Dota two model where you're building mm-hmm. up these huge prize pools because that's actually mm-hmm. something that. You know, the very first year we ran the Smite World Championship, we crowdsourced our okay. uh, World Championship pool and actually raised like two point, I forget exactly what it was, but it was something on the order of magnitude of like $2.3 million uh, yeah, okay. for the Smite World Championship prize pool. And what wound up happening at the end of this thing is uh, we had massive prizing, you know, around uh, for for where esports was at the time and the size of our game, you know, we gave mm-hmm. out all, over three million dollars in prizing for the year, but almost not, you know, over ninety percent of that went to uh, twenty kids, mm-hmm. right? And so there just wasn't that much left to spread around to the other hundreds of kids, right? And it was kind of starting to, and the feedback we were getting from the huge prize pool side was look it's it's too risky to be in smite esports if you have to work all year in order to go for that you know to have a a, a percentage shot at that big prize if there's not enough everywhere else to be able to kind of justify the fact that it takes working all day for a year right mm-hmm. uh, to uh to to be at that level so we we started to shift um to a uh, to more of a model of of you know sustainability around having not you know not necessarily in all cases salaries but basically reliable income for mm. the for the players of the game so that they could justify the time and investment they put into the game. Now, to your second point, it is interesting, right? That I think that is the best choice to build a sustainable esports ecosystem, especially with a mid-sized game like our side, like us, but it's also less sexy, right? It is kind of right. If, you know, we're about to hold our smite world championship for this year, we're also giving out millions of dollars in prizing and our in mm. prizing and salaries for smite this year. But this year, the smite world championship itself, while, the amount of prizing we've given out is more than ever this year, right? The world championship, I think is $600,000 or something like that, right? Mm. Is on stake for the world championship. That would, is a lot less sexy than if we had hogged all of that money and just said the world championship is $4 million. Right. Mm. And, um, that, uh, but we think it's best for the esport over the long haul, uh, that it, it, is able to 
uh, help us build the, you know, and that's because we've got, you know, we're spreading prizing around the full season for the Premier League, but also running development leagues. We have a Smite Minor League, a Smite Console League, all these other sorts of things mm-hmm. that are developing. And so we think over the long haul, our model makes sense, but it is harder to reach sponsors and other sorts of things. I do agree with your point. I think what's starting to happen with the ecosystem here is one, just the non-endemic sponsors really just need first needed to understand the industry. Right. And then they're Mm. kind of implying older models to how to think about these things, uh, which tend to be either like, okay, how many impressions and views can I get for this brand or Mm -hmm. what sort of just kind of large scale feeling of affinity can I create? And I I think both of those are going to bias them pretty heavily towards uh, the super top end of the sport, especially to begin with. Right. But I think we are seeing as, uh, as the sponsors uh, become a lot more just kind of familiar with the, uh, with the sport, you know, with esports in general, I, I think they're starting to understand things and starting to realize the value of the, the eyeballs that we can bring through Paladins and Smite that are incredibly engaged fans, right? Our fan bases might be smaller, but that doesn't mm. mean they're not massively engaged in what we're doing and they're still of decent size. So we're definitely seeing uh, that. Um, but yeah, yeah, we're bullish on that for the long term. I think with the teams, you know, we also provide a model for these teams that is, uh, you know, I think pretty attractive for a team to come into our league. Uh, you know, the upside potential of coming into the Smite Pro League or the Palins Pro League is, is you know, I, I would admit probably not nearly as massive as coming into uh, the Call of Duty League or the Overwatch League, for example. But I think the rely, we provide very reliable revenue streams for the teams. We provide, you know, there's not that much downside to coming into our league either. Uh, mm. And I think the pits, interesting you mentioned the Pittsburgh Knights. I think they've been fantastic, um, a fantastic team to have in our leagues and have really shown, you know, are really building a path forward that, you know, is showing how, um, a team like theirs can create great content, be engaged, and and it really makes sense over the long haul uh, to be in in these mid-level esports uh, as as a team, as a sponsor, and as a publisher. Mm. And I think personally, I need to stop telling myself there isn't there is a right answer to this question because <laughs> I think there really isn't, you know, around exactly what model. And my a lot of my discussion and pushback from people at the moment is why can't League of Legends both crowdfund? And, and support in the same way that they do. Because for me, a lot of the reason I play Dota is because of these season passes, because of the compendium in game and the jungle slash challenges that it offers to me. It breathes a bit of fresh life into the game. And, you know, there was a challenge where you have to play certain heroes and win with them to be able to get a special skin. And for me, I don't even care about the skin. I never have in any games, really. It's not personally, it's, it's not something for me, but I enjoy the, the pathway and the challenge of getting there, of completing the task, completing the quests. And, um, yeah, and they've got a similar answer to you, I guess, in the fact that League of Legends has crowdfunded prize pools in the past, and they do at the moment through certain warden skin sales, but not in the same way that Dota does. And I would definitely agree with what you're saying as well around the instability. You always see that at the end of the international. 
There's always the post-TI shuffle and a massive mega thread on Reddit of all the players saying, well, I want to win that million bucks a player like Team OG have for two years in a row and get that big prize pool. So I'm going to backstab or change teams and you know try to find the right people to do so instead of creating a more sustainable and closed-off ecosystem where you've got the same brands are at the top at all time. They're able to attract the sponsorship and then have that stability to be able to get the revenue and cash flow themselves to gain better sponsors, to be able to pay their players better salaries like you see in League versus Dota, et cetera, et cetera. Yeah, and obviously I, I can't talk to the economics behind League of Legends, and they're at a way different scale from us, so maybe it's all different. But you know, our fans, because we did crowdsource the prize pool for Smite in year one for the World Championship, we get very similar questions from our fan base, right? Is, is okay. We understand that you want to give out millions of dollars in, 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 uh, uh, prizing or salaries or whatever, not associated with the world championship, but why can't you still also crowdsource the world championship, right? And have both, right? And I think the, for us, the answer is it's a fair question, I think, from players, but but, you know, the reality about crowdsourcing through a compendium or through frameworks that we have is it's kind of moving money from the left pocket to the right pocket, if that mm. makes sense, right? I mean, you are having um, – it's it's not like it's really – you know, if we, uh, if we put, you know, $3 million of prizing into uh, the – Smite Pro League that wasn't crowdfunded to drive these other things, and then we let the World Championship be crowdfunded for an additional $3 million. The reality is the level that gets crowdsourced is kind of engineered by the publisher. Right? Mm. You understand. I make, I mean, outside of pure donations, right? Like if you, Chris, just say, I don't want anything. Uh, you know, I don't want anything in return for my support of the esports. I just want to support Dota esports, and here's you know my donation of money. That's one thing. But when it's a compendium framework, that's a um, there's a you know the publisher knows what they're making. They have a framework to understand what the demand for that thing they're going to make is going to be and how much it's going to raise and thus how much to contribute to the prize pool versus something else. And that, and that, and so what really comes down to is what's a reasonable percentage of revenue to spend on esports pricing, right? Mm. And provides it as an investment. And for us, we felt we couldn't do, we couldn't really do both, Right. Uh, and, and we have had, uh, we still do things that we're do crowdsource pricing, uh, for some aspects of Smitey Sports, but it's, but we're not able to crowdsource it at the level that can generate millions of dollars of revenue, right? Cause that doesn't, cause, you know, we have to make sure we get, uh, cause we were already contributing millions of dollars of revenue to the, to the normal framework of the league. Uh, and if we did that, it would just, it's not like the fact that we're crowdsourcing means that we earn that much more money. It really just, the content would make pretty much the same amount of money, whether we were crowdsourcing it or not, which we found mm. out very 
various experimentations. And so it's really just a matter of shifting money from one pocket to another, in my opinion, to call it crowdsourcing. I don't know if I'm saying that very eloquently, but yeah, a, uh, you know, I think it's, it's a little bit of a, I mean, it's a real thing. I think it creates great excitement for the player base. Um, but it's, uh, it's very hard to do both. Mm. Yeah, no, I think there's one model or the other. Yeah, I think there's some, some really fantastic points there. And I think it, it touches back once again. You always see the discussion when, you know, all of, all of the news comes out. Dota 2 International's on, biggest prize pool ever. But there's always the pushback from people saying, yes, but games like League of Legends spend four times the amount on that, on development of the scene. You know, they're hiring hundreds of full time staff around the world, even in minor regions like Australia, to, you know, run these things. They're paying salaries. They're feeding money to the teams. They're assisting. You know, they they are one of the largest reasons that Australia became professional as fast as it did in esports. They back end funded teams and said, "Look, we require you to have a team house and salaries and pay your players a certain amount and have them play from a studio." So we're gutting our own prize pool. We're back end funding teams. You know, very similar to what you were saying with Paladins and kind of forced the professionalization of the local industry. And they did a lot of great job here, but. Sometimes Dota 2 can roll in with a $32 million prize pool, and that's where the headlines go to. And I and I think that touches again on what's sexy, what's in the news, what are the VCs talking about versus what's sustainable sometimes. Well, I think, you know, an interesting point on that side, right, is once you do something like that, it is also hard. We caught a lot of flack when we changed models because suddenly, right, mm. that big number wasn't there, right? So I think yep. you have to kind of put, some things are the way they are because it was the way they started, right? Mm. I mean, I think it's, you know, you know, the unknown, right, is would Valve be running Dota 2 esports in a different way today if they didn't feel like it was, you know, going to be a detriment for that prize money, you know, for mm. that number to go down year over year? Or on the flip side, right, I don't know the answer to that question. On the flip side, would... um would League of Legends do it a different way, right? If they hadn't originally started in their type of framework. So I think you do kind of get locked into evolution and history and how perceptions are going to change over time as you make changes. I mean, mm-hmm. to me, it's interesting as we look at these models. To me, it's interesting that uh, Valve has never done a huge crowdsourcing model for CSGO in the way that they did for Dota 2. Mm-hmm at least that I'm aware of, right? Mm, mm. And so the, uh, uh, you know, if they were, you know, you have to ask yourself, right, if it was the panacea way to do it, wouldn't you do that? I don't know. So mm. the uh, so it's a, and it could be that each game has different dynamics, uh, you know, different player bases, different levels of engagement, and I'm sure if we talk to the right people at Valve, they can explain that, you know, they can explain that to us. Uh, but it's, but it's, in, but there's still a point to me, right? Is I think some ways, some things get, get done the way they are because it's hard to change once you start. Yeah, you're 100% right. And, and touching a little bit more info to like what you said, the, the quote unquote crowdfunding or, or sourcing model in CSGO has been a little bit similar to the League of Legends one where they might sell stickers or skins of certain players or teams, and those will help to provide funding directly to the teams. Um, or in the past, Faceit ran one of the first ever 
quote unquote large Counter Strike tournaments was a forty thousand dollar US prize pool, and that was the back off an M four A one S skin. They basically funded that prize pool through the sale of that skin. So there have been little showings of it, but you're right. And I've always asked that question too. You know, if it is great, why haven't they done it again? And it's it's always been really interesting to see the wide difference between the support of Dota 2 versus CSGO. The other thing I really liked about Dota 2 in the past was um, enabling the tournament operators to sell their own in-game tickets in a sort of pay-per-view that they can provide their own compendium models for. Um, that was able to draw some extra revenue and some prize pools for the Tier 2 tournaments and such before they went to the Dota Pro Circuit Major and Minor model, as they did with CSGO as well with some of the back-end prize pool funding. So, yeah, there's so many different models out there, and it's good to see that, um, you know, you've tried a couple and, and everybody else seems to have as well. <laughs> oh, yeah, and I, I do really love the models that let people, you know, and, and we do similar things that you mentioned in terms of, having content in our games that are themed around the teens, right? And mm. get to share and any revenue that's generated from that. I think those types of things to me are really great because it, it, uh, uh, you know, one, it increases the engagement with the esports because, you know, there's something in game and I can show it's like, you know, me wearing a, uh, you know, an Atlanta Falcons jersey around town, right? This is kind of my way of, of showing mm. others around me who I support, which I think is an important human thing. Uh, it also, I think, incents the, the teams to help promote, you know, their brand and, and, and the esport, uh, heavily. Those type of things I think are just like, steak and potatoes, bread and butter, everyone should be doing them. And I think you do see them pretty much all the major sports do do something like that, right? Like you mentioned, League has something like that. We have something like that. Uh, mm. CSGO has something like that. Dota has something like that. I think those types of things are are that help support the teams themselves are, are really valuable. Yeah, fantastic. So this is turning into being the longest podcast um, I think we've ever done, okay. <laughs> which is great, which is a good showing. It's been great. Um, they wanted to change tact a little bit to talk about yourself and, and more about business. Um, you know, being a CEO of a 450-person company is most certainly an, an envious task to a lot of people who work in the business. So I'd like to learn a bit about, you know, what's your day-to-day like and, and do you have any tips for, you know, startup founders who are currently massively scaling at the moment would like to learn from someone who's been through it before? Oh, gosh. You know, I think what I can probably teach anyone that's trying to learn is, is – um, uh, a lot of mistakes not to make, uh, which we've made along the way. I think it's, you know, hmm. the constant learning process, uh, for sure. As we, as we, um, you know, navigate, um, uh, you know, it's, it's tough just to navigate the startup phase, trying to find that success. And then it's tough to navigate handling the success as well, right. And kind of scaling to the next level after you reach that first success. But I think it's, um, you know, I, I don't know that I have any amazing pearls of wisdom. I, I think it's the biggest thing to me that, that I tell, you know, first and firm foremost, focus on the product, right. Which in our case mm. is the game. And I think it's, you know, you can, um, uh, you have to have, uh, a great uh, game, a great product first, um, especially if you're, if you're like us and you're going after kind of uh, free to play markets, it's especially sensitive to the product has to be great. Right. Cause anyone, mm-hmm. uh, you know, the uh, it's not like you can kind of, there's no sense in trying to market your way around a bad game. 
because, you know, the whole economics of the industry are driven around it, you know, for it to make sense, you have to have a great game that people play and are willing to open their wallet for. You can get lots of downloads with through marketing, uh, but you have to have a great game to justify the cost of that. And the, uh, so I think, you know, we try to put as much of our, uh, investment as we possibly can first onto the product. And then second, which is the games. And then secondly, around engagement, you know, we, we don't, you know, we're trying to educate folks, you know, around the company. Don't talk as much around monetization or all these other sorts of things. Just talk around engagement, 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 how, mm. how, um, uh, and to us, that's where esports really comes in is, you know, the success of, of games in our model, the free to play model, we, we see pretty linear correlation between how engaged players are and how well the game does economically, right? What the mm. revenue per user is, things along those lines. And you get and engagement is, you know, you know, not just around how long are people playing the game, although that matters a lot, right? And that matters not only in, oh, okay, I'm, I've been playing this game consistently for a year, but it's inside of a single week or a month. How often are you playing it? When you play in a day, are you playing for an hour? Are you playing for three hours, right? That type of engagement really, really matters. But it also matters how your community is engaging with you beyond the game itself. And I think that's where, where live media and esports is a huge thing for us. You know, we see, again, if, if players love our game and enough that they're willing to engage in watching the game on, on, um, Twitch or Mixer or, or YouTube and, uh, you know, either through content creators or through esports that we, we've done lots of studies and we think that has kind of, you know, linear impact on how likely that player is to be able, you know, to, to, uh, spend money on the game and to keep playing the game. So we just focus on hmm. engagement, 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 and trying to hone that, uh, as, as much as we possibly can. And, and, um, you know, and then obviously we try to keep financial, you know, sort of risky hit based industry. So you have to manage, you know, uh, investments and cash flow very wisely, uh, around that fact. Uh, but outside of that, we, really just try to stay focused on the product and on player engagement. Mm, and and finally touching on Hi-Rez as a company, you know, where do you see some of the some of the direction going and do you see a public listing as, as something interesting to you in the future? You know, I think for a um a public listing, I'll get that off off the table right away. That's not a focus of ours to get to that point. I you know, uh mm-hmm. you never say never, especially with things like that. I think we would mm. not probably need we would probably want to be you know, two or three times our current size before I think that, uh, um, you know, was an attractive option to us, uh, even if we wanted to do it. But I think we're, mm. uh, we've been part of uh, the management team here. It's been, been uh, one of our a lot of the management team here came from another company, which is a technology company that had been public. We love being private. It's really nice. There's lots of advantages to being a private company, especially if you're fortunate like we are to not be in a position where we need a lot of outside capital. 
that's not something we need a lot of. So the uh, so for us, we're just really focused on making great games. I think we've become, if anything, more focused on the type of games we want to make. We want, you know, we we think we've developed an expertise at making cross-platform, free-to-play, uh, multiplayer shooters uh, that span across all input methods and screen sizes. And input methods to me is is touch controller and keyboard and mouse and screen sizes goes from your phone all the way up to a TV. And the uh, we're really focused on that. We have a great new title coming out early next year called Rogue Company that we're very excited about. It's in the tactical action shooter segment. And um, and the, our Smite and Paladins, especially, but also Realm Royale, you know, continue to have just just great communities around them. And when you get a live service game that works, you really just need to put a lot of focus on on servicing those communities, and they reward you for that focus. Uh, you know, by you know those games are doing. Uh, really well and we want to make sure they do well for you know decades to come bro company interesting first time hearing about it for me so i'm yeah i'm definitely going to look that up see what i can find out about it yeah we're very excited about it well probably by the time this comes out we have our annual uh user expo the week we're we're uh this week uh november uh 14th, 15th, and 16th, mm. uh, and we'll be sharing a lot more information about that. So by time you're uh, uh, probably by time this makes it onto the air, your fans should uh, should definitely look it up. Then we'll we'll be a lot more out there about the game. Fantastic! Yeah, it'll be in about two weeks from from uh, the time of recording. So yeah, we'll be out around that time. Fantastic, mate. Well, like I said, this this turned into the longest podcast we've done, the Big Esports Podcast, and I'm I'm happy. I learned I learned a lot and I really enjoyed the discussion. I enjoyed it as well. Thanks so much. So if people want to follow you, Paladins or Smite online or any of your other titles, where can they do so? Yeah, so I'm at uh, S Chisholm, S C H I S A M, uh, on Twitter. And then, uh, it's Paladins game and Smite game on pretty much any, uh, any, uh, platform out there as well as Rogue Company on pretty much any social media platform out there. Fantastic, mate. Well, thanks for coming again, and I can't wait to have you back in a year or two for a follow-up or maybe a LinkedIn Live sometime down the track. Sounds great. I appreciate it. Great talking with you. Thanks, mate, and thanks to you for listening in to the Big Esports Podcast. For any of the show notes, information on this episode, or any of our others, you can head to bigesports.gg forward slash podcast, and you can see anything we've talked about. Thanks for listening, and bye for now. Thanks for tuning into our podcast today. For show notes, relevant links, and upcoming projects, you can check us out online at bigesports.gg or follow us on our social medias at bigesports underscore gg. 